My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Do you think that it ever becomes, you know, do you ever think you know, an exchange goes up where people can start bidding on, bidding on seats on multiple airlines? You know, I always sat there and said, hey, what about like a New York Stock Exchange where every seat, every, every seat goes up and you can start to you know, bid on it? You can do a buy it now and you got it or you can bid on it and see what see what happens. Um, you know, tough way to make a living. If you're an airline, I probably didn't, don't want to do it, but you got a lot of tech people out there that are saying, Hey, why not? And we could probably make a buck off of it. So but if you remember years ago, it wasn't the same thing, but Priceline sort of started that idea with at least opaque pricing, right? That will tell you, we can get you from New York to Florida for this price, but we're not going to even tell you which airline you're going to fly until you buy it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so so there have been, you know, around the fringes, plays and things like that. The real challenge is that if you look at the price elasticity of individual customers, so how important is price in the decision of both who, whether they take the trip or not and who they fly? Mm-hmm. It's the people who pay the highest prices. They show price elasticity, but not as much as the discretionary traveler. So, for example, a number of years ago, a big hurricane hit Cancun, and for one whole season, about half the hotels were out of commission in Cancun. Remember that. What happened that year was Cancun travel dropped way down, but Punta Cana and the Dominican travel in the Dominican Republic travel skyrocketed. People said, I'll substitute a nice Mexican beach with a nice Dominican beach, right? right? And so people still went to their vacation, but they couldn't go to Cancun that year, so they went to Punta Cana. Um, the the point is, the um, the point is that is that as airlines, you know, think about pricing their product, they don't want all of their traffic to be that discretionary. They want to take advantage of the customer who says, "I'm willing to pay for a nicer seat," or "I'm willing to pay for a well-timed flight," or "I'm even willing to pay to be part of a frequent fire program that." you know, every once in a while lets me take my family to Hawaii or to Europe or something. And for that kind of travel, do they, do they want to, do they want to encourage that travel to go to a bid structure, you know, and sort of bid for the seat? Because, you know, insurance companies have this term called adverse selection, meaning exactly the people we don't want to buy a product are the ones who are going to buy the product. Right, Right, exactly. Yes. And and that's the problem with that, I think, is there, I think airlines are fearful that there'd be too much adverse selection of people who used to pay them $500 now figure out they can, with reliability, get the flight for $250 by buying it this way. And they don't want to let them do that. Yeah. I think, yeah, but at the, you know, the, the, and you tell me, you've been the airline CEO. I've just been the guy in seat 27C. <laughs> um, you know, I, my annual travel is, yeah, before 2020, over 10, probably between 10 and 20,000 bucks. And it all comes out of my own pocket. You know, it's like one of those things where I get on, you know, I, I, American has been my airline of choice. Only, you know, Wilmington ILM is easy. It goes to the West Coast. I can get up to New York and go whatever. 
And I always thought it was kind of crazy that they never came to me and said, hey, look, we, we know that you pay between ten dollars and $20,000 a year um, for, for seats. They used to have this AirPass product. They sort of have it. You know, quite frankly, it would have been, hey, look, guys, if you'd said to me, pay me ten grand up front, and here's kind of what that would look like, or fifteen grand up front, here's kind of what it looked like, and we'll throw in some admirals. You know, it's like, hey, look, I'm not, I'm the easiest guy, I'm the easiest guy in the world. I'll buy a six hundred, six hundred dollar ticket all day long, or seven hundred dollar ticket all day long, and I don't even, yeah, all you got to do is give me one cup of coffee. Um, you think that some AI programs, uh, you know, look, I know that I'm just kind of the, you know, I'm just one of 10 million every day, but you know, I, I know they could do a better job. Is there a better way or are they doing it already? Is there a better way that they could figure out the demographic for, Hey, look, this is probably somebody we should focus on a little bit more and get more creative with as far as a, yeah, how to get more money out of their pocket. You know, at that- the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's business. How do I get more money out of the customer's pocket? There's absolutely better a better way. You're right. Airlines have been have uh, tried to attract their business travel largely through travel agencies or deals with corporations who direct where their people fly. One of the things that's true about most corporate business travel is the individual traveling doesn't make necessarily make the decision about whether the trip's going to happen or not. Right? Mm-hmm. The company says you're going to fly this trip, and they may. They may influence whether they're on American or Delta, right? And and things like that. Um, And so so airlines, as they're looking for something other than just the commodity price, then they're going to have to start looking for how do we attract a person like you? Anyone spending 10 to 20 grand a year on travel is much more valuable than sort of the discretionary travel that the ULCCs are carrying. Right. The ULCC average customer flies a couple times a year and maybe pays a thousand bucks in travel a year. Right. They're not they're not traveling as regularly as you are. So the reality is when I said there's opportunity and loyalty, that's exactly the example I was thinking about is there are a lot of people like you who travel more, who travel more regularly, who have choices of the airlines. One of the beautiful things about you in Wilmington is Delta would say, I can serve you if you connect through Atlanta as well as American can, right? <laughs> right? right? I mean, if you're living in Dallas, it's kind of hard to avoid American. If you're living in Atlanta, it's kind of hard to avoid Delta. But in Wilmington, you really do have choices. And there's lots of Wilmingtons in the US. You got American and Delta. You're going to Atlanta or you're going to Charlotte. You got no, you got, <laughs> no, right. you got no, uh, there's no other, there's no other, no, no other option. Drive to Myrtle Beach and take spirit, right? There you go. Or, or drive to Myrtle, drive the hour and a half down to Myrtle Beach and take spirit. And, uh, you know, that's, but uh, it's, it's all good. You know, I agree with you on the digital side of the house. I think that, you know, I was talking to a guy who was a, uh, I had a guy on this podcast a couple months ago and he was a big AI guy. And he said, Hey, look, there's coming a day where you can snap your picture. You make your reservation, you snap your picture, you now have facial recognition. You show up at the airport, you show your boarding pass, the camera takes your picture. You don't even have to, you know, the, the TSA guy doesn't even really need to, you know, take your ID anymore. Your, 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 your face is your ID getting on the airplane. I mean, I I think that there's going to be huge opportunities there. What about the revenue models? Those things got to be all screwed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right about that. It's uh you know, I think the companies like Clear um, Biometrics 
and airlines doing their own biometric things. I think I think the idea there is make it touchless, make it smoother, less friction in the process, less chance to less chance to even sort of be face to face with people. And again, at some point, this this virus is going to be gone, and we're not going to be wearing masks everywhere and things like that. But the sense of risk has just changed in this country. Yeah, I'm convinced, Craig, if you fly five years from now, maybe what I hope is that you, mask mandates will be a thing of the past, but you're going to get on the plane and there's going to be some people wearing masks mm-hmm. and nobody's going to look at them like they're crazy. Yeah, it's like Asia. You go to Asia, oh, a lot of people that, That's masks. right. And so, so moving in that direction where there's fewer people involved in the transaction and biometrics instead of pulling out a you know a germy license right, or something like that. I, I think that is the future for for airlines and and you know other businesses frankly to think like that I think so too. is it a good time to be starting an airline well you know I don't think it's ever a good time to start an airline because airlines are such hard businesses right and they and even in good times they run relatively thin margins compared to, you know, a a tech company or something like that. But are there ways to do it better? I think the answer is absolutely yes. You know, if, if, if you had bet against David Nealman, for example, in your life, you, you would be relatively poor, right? He's had good success in Canada with WestJet, with Morris Air, with JetBlue, then in Brazil, now he's going to be starting Breeze in the U.S. And, and, so is David going to be successful with that? My guess is he probably will be because he's been successful everywhere he's been. He's smart and he'll evolve what Breeze is just as JetBlue evolved as to what it was. If you look at the initial plans of JetBlue before the airline ever flew in the you know late, early, late 1980s, the airline today isn't the exact same airline that they you know said it would be, right? Because- because companies evolve. So I think that, you know, nobody thought there was a business that Allegiant found, right? That you could buy older, fully depreciated airplanes and fly twice a week from Lubbock to Las Vegas and make money with that, right? And Allegiant's a very high margin airline that's built a huge business that nobody even thought about that business before. So I'm not smart enough to say there aren't other good a models out there. I bet- yeah, no. Hey, look, Allegiant's done a great job. Obviously, Dave Nealman's done a good job. It now, sounds like he's- you know- If somebody wants to configure an A320 with 45 all business class seats and fly New York to LA, I wouldn't be optimistic about that. No. <laughs> all right. All right. So I'm not saying that every new model idea is a great new idea, but are there out, some out there that could be? I think absolutely. What uh, What about the long term? You got uh, the Max coming out or the Max it's out and it's coming back in. I think that's probably going to be a really good, I think I think that's going to come in with, with little fanfare and be a good airplane. And you got the A321. Um, how long are those two airplanes carrying the lion's share of the passengers? I, I, I really think this pandemic has put, plus the green, the green initiatives have put all airplane design sort of in a, in the penalty box for a couple of years until we understand what governments are going to accept as far as emissions and risk tolerances to the OEMs and things like that. What, uh, what's your thoughts? I think that's a real insightful question, Craig. Um, I think you're right. I think some of those things are on pause. Also, 
the the build back of demand, if it really does take a couple of years, favors those size airplanes, meaning 7.3 Max, A320, 21 kind of size airplanes, because they're just lower risk. You know, I teach a class at George Mason University on airline economics. And one of the things I teach my students is you can make this much money with a narrow body and this much money with a wide body. But in good times, you can make this much more with a wide body, but you can lose this much more. Right? It's like playing with leverage. The point is the risk is so much greater. So, so migration toward that 150 to 200 seat size airplane with a single aisle as opposed to dual aisles, the, the, the marketplace and the pandemic is encouraging that as well as the green initiatives. So I think that, uh, I think the max is going to be, you know, the, the plane was selling really well before the two very unfortunate crashes. Mm -hmm. I think the 20 month delay that the plane was grounded, I think they fixed the reasons that plane crashed, both the engineering issues of the software system they call MCAS, and as importantly, the training protocol required for a pilot to fly the plane. I think both of those things were issues in the crashes and they've both been addressed. So there's, you know, there'll be fanfare as each new airline that flies the plane. You know, there was a lot of media around Americans first flight to Miami to New York, and there'll be media around Southwest first max flight, mm -hmm. United's first max flight. But by the middle or end of this year, people are going to board that plane and not think twice. It's just going to be another plane in the air. I'm I, I think, I think it's going to be the same thing. Nobody's going to be, you know, I remember the, uh, I remember the, uh, it was the DC 10 crash, the American DC 10 crash back in the, the late eighties, everybody was petrified. Yeah. You know, it's like, what? Okay. Yeah. It got fixed. You know, it, to me, it's amazing that the number of takeoffs and landings that happen every year around the world and the number of, the number. More uh, recently, Craig, the 787 had batteries that exploded. Mm -hmm. Now people didn't get killed. They weren't in air and, you know, there weren't the, there wasn't, there weren't the fatalities of the max crashes. So I'm not comparing those in terms of the damage to people, but but people get on 787s, you know, up to the pandemic time, we're getting on 787s all the time. And we're thinking, oh, are the batteries gonna explode on this flight? <laughs> I just don't think that. Like I said, the amount of, the number of takeoffs and landings that happened with the uh the 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 small the 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 minuscule number of mishaps, it, it the industry has done an amazing job of you know, promoting safety. I mean, you think about it every, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's safer than taking the train. Um, you know, whoever thought, you know, 50 years ago, who, who would have ever thunk it, but it's, it. Uh, well, you're, you're right. You're right. And, and, and if you travel around the world, you realize that the world has basically copied what the U S does for airlines when it comes to safety. The U.S. in many ways sets the standard for the way maintenance is done on airplanes, for the way pilots and flight attendants are trained, the way oversight uh, entities, you know, oversee the operators and, and things like that. And we, we should be justifiably proud of the fact of how safe the air transportation system is. And even in the pandemic case, now, there was self-interest here, right, because they had to get passengers, but airlines even went much further than governments around safety issues, mandating masks on airplanes, right, even before, that's a tougher thing for a governor or a mayor 
to do, but you could say you're not flying if you don't wear the mask, right? And they did that. They in, they increased their cleaning. They put up shields at the airports between the people things, and they did things to visibly show they're going to extend that safety from not just operational safety, but to biological safety as well. Yeah. And I think the industry's done a good job with that. I think CEOs share a lot of lead. All the CEOs share a lot of leadership. I mean, I agree yeah, come on, it's, you know, 80% of your business crashes overnight. People are screaming because, you know, they're, they're fearful. And, and these guys all, yeah, you got employee issues and, and all the other stuff. And, and uh, look, uh, like, I'm glad I wasn't one of you. I'm glad I wasn't a CEO. I look at it, I go, holy, I think about I think about all the airline CEOs. I remember coming on my wife. I go, she's like, how was your day? I go, man, I'm just happy I wasn't an airline CEO today because uh, I can't imagine, uh, you know, the, the amount of stress out there. But, uh, but, you know, but that said, Craig, there are every disruption, and this is a massive one, right? Every disruption has its relative winners and losers. Yep. And the way airlines are behaving today in terms of their own capacity, their own cash management, their own willingness to make changes, to, to stop burning cash, where they fly the planes, how they're treating their employees, how they're communicating with their customers. The companies that do that set of things better than others are going to emerge from this relatively stronger. Yep. And I think whatever the airline world looks like, next year, like later this year, 2022, 2023, there's going to be a, a, some differences in the relative strengths. Maybe some airlines have thought of themselves as sellers now think of themselves as buyers or vice versa, right? There could be that as well. So I just think it's, uh, you know, airlines are sort of jockeying for how they're going to emerge from this as well, not just how they're going to survive. Through. Do you, so here's the last question I'll ping you with, ping you with for now, and then we're going to come back and do this in a couple of months, but okay. uh, do you lease or buy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, are the leasing companies the big winners in this at I the end of the day? Le- I, I actually leasing, I think leasing companies aren't the big winners right now because they're not getting paid by many airlines right now, or they've had to negotiate deferrals on payment. They make big bets on big fleets. And to the extent they have bets on lots of wide bodies, they're probably nervous about, am I going to be able to place these planes? Mm -hmm. There's literally thousands of airplanes that were flying in 2019 that are sitting on the ground right now around the world. Many of those, the financial ownership of those is at the lessor not at the airline, so they're worried about that. So I think the lessors are in trouble right now. And yet, lessors are such an important piece of this industry that are they gonna create flexibility and availability and financial wherewithal to airlines as they emerge? I think they will. And maybe some airlines that used to own will say, I need a partner in the lessor that I didn't need before. Mm-hmm. And others will sort of re-up that partnership. So I, I think it's a good business, but I think it's a very challenged business right now. Yeah, yeah, no. Look, I, you know, uh, yeah, I was just looking at the Air Lease and Air Cap, the two bigger yeah. leasing companies. Their stocks are on a roll. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> somebody's got to start. What, what time does somebody start? You know, mark to market. That I have they, you know, and do they? Well, mark the real to- issue, you know, is if you believe. If you believe that the fundamental collateral value of this equipment is going to drop, 
that would make you more worried about those businesses. But whatever an A320 is worth, if you think it's going to be worth that again in a couple of years, yep. that's their businesses are based on that hard collateral. Yep. And that gives them a security that lots of businesses don't have. One thing you didn't bring up, Craig, I hope you don't mind if I do, is, is another piece in that chain are the engine manufacturers, not just yes, sir. manufacturers. And the engine manufacturers are also, I think, in a worse position than either Boeing or Airbus right now. Because when you buy an airplane from Boeing or Airbus, they basically get paid most of what they're going to get paid after delivery. Mm -hmm. The engine, however, is sold a little bit more like a Gillette Razor. Yep. Where, where you, you buy the handle and the blade, but you're buying the blades all the time and that's the stream. So the engine manufacturers tell, tend to sell the engine for a relatively low price, but lock the airlines into a long-term annuity of maintenance and recovery. When the planes aren't flying, the yep. engines aren't being burned, they're not earning that money. So they didn't necessarily get paid up front for the full price of their product and they're not getting the annuity stream that they expected. So their revenues have really been hit too. Yeah, GE, well, I know, you know, GE, I talk to, I talk to people at GE all the time and they're, they're, you know, their power by hour programs are crushed. I was talking yeah. to a fellow up in Connecticut. He's like, hey, look, we want to go out and you know, distressed engines, you know, go, go find green, you know, distressed green time engines from people who have been caught, you know, a lot of the brokers, the air engine leasing companies are out there and their, their banks are calling the note. Um, the MRO shops, that concerns me a lot is look, it's real easy to turn the lights off on a business. Yeah. Just flip it with a switch. We're shutting it down. You want to turn it back on. It takes a whole lot of work. And I think the one thing that really bothers me is engine MRO capacity. If we allow all these shops to you know, wither on the vine as the industry starts to, to, to write itself. So there's a whole lot of downstream. I think there's a whole lot of downstream opportunities. I think there's a whole lot of downstream challenges, though, that people are industry people know them, but are not necessarily making it out to the public. You know, it, uh, you know it's it's I um, think I think that's right. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who don't necessarily agree with me on this next statement. But one of the reasons I think it has been generally good public policy to provide support to airlines. A lot of people say, why would you support airlines but not support restaurants or not support other businesses? Is the enormous employment that not only is involved in the airlines, but also the lessors, also the manufacturers of the planes, also the engine manufacturers, also the MROs, right? All these businesses are attached to the commercial and, and freight airlines in the US. And so collectively, it's a big piece of the company's GDP. Yeah, well, I, I, world economies can't grow without airlines. I mean, it, it, it's a fundamental, it's a, just a fundamental fact. If you want your economy to grow, you've got to have an effective transportation system. Smaller countries can do it with rail, but the United States absolutely 100% needs the airlines to grow economically. Well, yeah, you're right. People and goods need to move for an economy to flow. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that was always my yeah, that was always my proponent was, hey, look, we don't necessarily need to protect the shareholders, but we do need to protect the ability for the airlines to operate as businesses. And we'll start to see what happens with the shareholders come April, May, when the money runs out. And then, yeah, that'll be the great shareholder reckoning. But at the end of the day, we got to keep the businesses, 
you know, we, we've got to keep a future aviation industry in the country viable, profitable, and ready to grow so that the, you know, the economy can go. So. Amen, Craig. I totally agree with you. So Airline Confidential is your podcast. <laughs> when do, uh, Airlines Confidential. <laughs> Airlines Confidential. And where do people find it? And how do they, when does it, when do, when do they find it? Where do they find it? How do well, they Thank connect you very with much. It? It's a weekly show. We drop every Wednesday. Okay. And we're, uh, the next show will be episode 66. So we're just over a year into it. Awesome. And we're on Apple, we're on Stitcher, we're on Spotify, we're anywhere you get podcasts, you can find us. And if you go to Apple Podcasts and you type in airlines, ours is the first show that pops up. Awesome. So Ben Baldanza is the former CEO of Spirit Airlines. He's on the board of JetBlue. Uh, let me see, Six Flags as Six well. Six Flags as well, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and now a, a famous podcast host. <laughs> Thank you so much, Craig. This has been a great discussion. And I really hope we can get together in a couple of months when we both will know a lot more about what's really happening. I'll look forward to it, Ben. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it as always. Thanks so much. And best to your family and stay safe. Thanks, sir. Talk soon. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com. Or check us out at www.northstaresg.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.